Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14 is our passage tonight. Uh, if you remember last week, when we were looking at verses 5 through 10, 5 kind of served as a thesis statement, as he said in verse 5, For if we have been united with him, that's Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then he continued to expound on that and detail it out for us through verses 10. And now we find ourselves in verse 11, in which he writes, chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let me pray for us as we get started tonight. Lord God, we thank you that we can't come here tonight and read your word and worship you together. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be convicting us. Lord, that you would be showing us your truth, showing us your grace. And Lord, that you'd be glorified tonight, that would be worshipful to you as we study your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Years ago, as Jason would say, when I was a young lad, <laughs> I was a young lad at this point, Jason, thank you. Uh, I remember we would always park our cars outside. I actually, I, I still do that. But my family, we'd park our cars outside um, on, the, on our driveway. And one morning we come, uh, we, we walk over our house to go to school, and we see that my dad's uh, car window was bashed in, broken. Maybe this has happened to you. It's very sad. Uh, and things were stolen from the car. And I don't remember what it was that was stolen, but I just remember that after that, we did not park our car out in the driveway any longer. Uh, in fact, we did a lot of different things. My dad got a car alarm on his car. Uh, we started parking in the garage. Uh, we stopped leaving valuable things, or at least things that looked valuable, in the car. Uh, we, because of that, because of uh, just the car being broken into, we thought, well, we don't want that to happen again. And so we made drastic changes, or at least some changes, to prevent that. That's not uncommon. Maybe you guys have had your car broken in, and so you say, okay, yeah, maybe I shouldn't park here anymore. Maybe I should not leave my purse on the driver's seat, or, or maybe you still do that. I don't know, but you shouldn't. Right? It's not super uncommon, though, that when a, a big life event, that wasn't even a big life event, but when a big life event occurs, naturally things change for the people involved, right? Like for us, it was like, okay, we don't want our car smashed into anymore. We don't think there are things stolen. So things got to change. Life does not just move on as normal. Often, things happen differently because of an event that's happened in your life. And the same is certainly true now for the person who is united with Christ. Even more so, I would say, right? To be taken from death into life just uh, naturally causes incredible and drastic changes in that person, 
It can't be the same. If you are, 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 were dead and now alive, if you were in Adam but you're now in Christ, like naturally changes will happen. Life will be different. And we've seen so much in the last five and a half chapters of Romans, the desperate state that man is in, the natural man is in. And we've seen the incredible, gracious work of Christ that he has accomplished on our behalf, right? We've seen that. It's just been laid out over and over. I mean, Romans 1 is just like the wrath of God's upon you, like all this stuff. But we've seen our union with Christ. We've seen the hope and all this that Christ gives us by his grace. And the most recent... We've seen the focus being on what? The Christian's union with Christ. Now here in this passage, we see for the first time in Romans, Paul gives a command. You realize that? He is yet to do so. In five and a half chapters, he is not given a command. And finally, he does. He lists a command or commands. Now, we aren't to take these commands that we're going to look at tonight. We can't take these out of context. right? We can't just take these commands and, and, and just focus on them out of its context. But instead, we're to view these commands as to how the Christian is to live in light of what we've just been talking about for five and a half chapters. In light of God's grace. In response to our union with him. So we'll see in this passage four imperatives. Or four commands as to how the Christian is to live in light of being united with Christ. Followed by one indicative or one truth reminding us of the grace that we've received. Alright, so that's kind of our roadmap for tonight. So first we see the command. Or the commands. Verses 11 through 13. This is where we'll find our four imperatives. First. You say Christian. I'm starting all these off with the Christian, right? Because what? This is in response to the person who is now united in Christ. So Christian, be confident that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The command in verse 11 is that you must Consider. That's the command, is that you must consider. And this is a crucial point and something that we can't just pass over. Sometimes we read this verse 11 and maybe it feels like a transitional sentence or we just, okay, yeah, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus, and we move on. No. We must look at exactly what he's saying here. The word used here is actually uh, logizomai, the Greek word, which means to reckon, as in to take into account. Now, why do I say that word logizomai? Why? Because it's, it's, it's important. I think it'll help you to understand. It's where we get similar words to like logistics or log, right? If you log something, like when you take a log of something, what are you doing? You're taking a record of something, right? It's, it's also where, where we get logic or we get logical or logarithm. Okay, the point here is fact, not wishful thinking, but fact. It, it, it is on account of. Of a reality that is true. And that's the word that he's saying. The command he's saying. So you also must consider. It is, is, is consider this fact. An account of what is true. That is Paul's imperative. That's his command. To take into account. To consider what God has already done for us. That he's made you dead to sin. And made you alive to God. 
See, the imperative is not on the dying. He's, he's not commanding us then to die. That's not something that we can do. It's something that we receive in our union in Christ. But rather, the imperative is on the considerate that we are to constantly viewing ourselves in this way. How do we grow in godliness? How do we grow in holiness? We must be confident. We must consider. We must account for the truth and reality that Christian, you are dead to sin and you are alive in him. So what is that reality? What, what, what's the reality of being dead to sin? Well, we, we, we've talked about this over and over again in this chapter. I mean, he's been explaining it this whole time, right? So I'll quickly review. Verse 2, we died to sin. Verse 3 and 4, we were baptized into his death. Verse 5, we were united with him in his death. Verse 6, remember last week, the old self was what? Crucified with him. Paul's saying, consider this. Take into account that you are dead to sin. Christian, is it, is it hard to believe sometimes that you're dead to sin? I know it can be for me at times. Why? Why would it be difficult? Because I still sin. Right? I, I, I struggle with sin daily. And so I wonder, how can I be dead to sin and yet still fall to sin? But being dead to sin does not mean that, that we're immune to sin. It, it, it doesn't mean that we will no longer sin. It means what? As we looked at last week. It means that we are dead to the old self. That we can't go back to that. It's been crucified with Christ on the cross. We're dead to it. We've been set free from what? The tyranny, from the rule of sin. With these chains broken, Christian, we can, by the power of God, resist the sin in our lives now. We're no longer slaves to it. We're going to look at that next week. Right? We, we don't have to obey sin anymore. We've been set free. We're dead to it. That's the reality of being dead to sin. We must consider this. We must reckon, like, account of this. Like, take a log of that. No, it's true. And not only that, but being alive to God. What is that? What, what, what's the reality of being alive to God? I mean, many things, right? It means that you've been reconciled to God. It means you've been adopted into his family. It means that you're a new creation. It means you have new desires now to glorify him. It means you mortify the flesh and you seek his will. It means you are no longer satisfied in the things of this world, but you're not satisfied in him. I mean, we can go on and on and on. Because believing in God and being alive in God... It changes everything. And Paul is saying, be confident, consider these truths, account for these truths, as it changes everything. So we, we, we can go back to the question at the beginning of the chapter. Well, then should I continue in sin so that grace may abound? Answer? By no means, right? By no means, why? He says account for these things because you're dead to sin and you're alive to God. So by no means, like how, how can I keep on sinning that grace may abound? I'm dead to it. And not only am I dead to it, but I'm alive to God. Like why would I go back to the old self? I have better things to do than to sin. Like I get to live for God now. I'm alive in him. So why am I wasting my time going back to the old self when I'm already dead to it? Why would I go back to sinning? That's foolishness. That's silly. I, why would I do that? Right? Like, by no means. I'm alive to God. That's way better than going back to sin. That's what he's getting at. So, Christian, if you're here tonight, Christian, do you count for these truths? Like, do you count for the fact, Christian, that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God? I hope you do. 
And if so, if you do, then what? Then don't go on sinning. He says, but live for God. And so he goes on. He, he fleshes that out a little bit more. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. So next, the next imperative, Christian, do not, he says. Well, do not what, Christian? Do not let sin reign in your life. Christian, do not let sin reign in your life. Now, while the Christian is dead to sin, yes, we can account for that. There is still a struggle with sin, Christian. In fact, if, if there was no struggle, there'd be no point in, in Paul's command to not let sin reign in your life, you see. In the same way, though sin does not have to reign in your life, Christian doesn't have to. Otherwise, Paul's command and warning would be just as pointless. Sin is a powerful force, though. It is a powerful force that we cannot ignore. And Paul uses the word reign. As if sin is a powerful master, which it is. It is. But this powerful master has been dethroned in the Christian's life and no longer has authority over the Christian. So his command to the Christian is don't let it. Don't let it have authority over your life. Don't let it reign in your life. How do we let that happen? How do we let sin reign in our life? By obeying its passions. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And he specifically says our mortal bodies, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Now there's some, some debate on what that means, mortal bodies. He can be referring to life and how we interact with the world in our mortal bodies. Or he can be referring to our physical bodies. Right? Don't let your mortal bodies, your physical bodies, let, don't let sin reign in that. Because the word in the Greek is, is used for both, and context is used for both. So it, it's very difficult to determine. But I'm not sure that they need to be mutually, mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they're actually very related. As in, how does our physical body interact with the world around us? And I think there's a little bit more of, of a leaning towards the physical body because he goes on later and says, do not present your members to sin as in members of that body, right? Your, your physical member parts. So let's look at different aspects of how the members of our bodies interact with the world, all right? How does your mind, let's start with the mind. How does your mind interact with the world? I'm talking to the Christian, right? How does your mind interact with the world? It starts here. This is why in Romans 12, 2, we're going to get there. Seniors, you're probably not going to get there. I'm sorry. But everyone else, I think you'll get there. But you can listen to the podcast, all right? Jonah, I know you got me, right? You listen to the podcast. Okay. Or, if you're, or you could be back on staff. There you go. All right. Anyway, Romans 12, 2, right? Paul says that we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Because the way we think, what, what we believe to be true, what we fill our minds with, has a dramatic effect on our lives. The Christian mind ought to be drastically different than the non-Christian. I'm not saying that 
the, that the Christian needs to do math differently than the non-Christian, right? Or spelling different, like, and that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about our worldview, right? Our mind, our worldview needs to be different. Like, what we think about the value of life needs to be different. What we think about the purpose of life, what we think about the value of, of ourselves or the value of possessions or how to measure success and worth or how to prioritize your life, like, these things, Christian, they ought to be different than the non-Christian. The Christian's mind and, and, and how we think about these things, it ought to be radically different than the world. And it's sad to say that too often Christians are indistinguishable from the non-Christians in this way. They look the same. The lines start to blur as if they're the same. Do you think differently than the world? Do you think differently? What do you fill your minds with? What are you feeding your mind with? Are, are you constantly watching shows and movies or, 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 or listening to music or, or scrolling through social media just, just all day filling your mind with the things of the world? Be careful. Be careful. Don't think that, that it won't have any effect on you at all. I urge you, fill your mind with God's truth. Not with what the world deems to be true. But what are you feeding your mind? Not just your mind, but how do your eyes and your ears interact with the world? How do your eyes and ears interact with the world? What is it that you're looking at? What is it that you're listening to? Are these things pushing you towards Christ? Or do these things welcome sin into your life? Billions of dollars are spent in studying how to best advertise and entice your eyes. The most recent study, I don't know, the most recent study I could find estimates that the average person encounters six to 10,000 ads every single day. Whether on phones or computers or billboards or whatever. And if you're like, no, not a chance, it, that's how bad it is that you don't even realize it. Six to 10,000 ads every day. It's everywhere. And these ads are not meant to encourage you in your walk with the Lord or to push you towards Christ, I'll tell you that. These ads, at the root of it, are playing off the notion that personal gratification is, is the dominant goal in your life. That that's what your life's about. And they're betting that you will bite. They're betting that you're going to say, yeah, that's what I want. You see it with your eyes. You hear it with your ears. And you want it. Uh, wait, what was the number again? Six to 10,000. Oh. Six to 10,000. Thank you. And what they tell you is that your life will be more complete. Right? That your life will be complete with this. That your life will be better with this. Whatever this is. Whether it be a material item. Whether it be sexual gratification. Whether it be praise from man. Whatever. They're saying this is what you need for your life to be better. And their goal is to idolize it. To idolize the material items. To idolize more comfortable life. Or to idolize sexual pleasure. To idolize these things as more important than godliness. You see, this is what is more important in your life. Not godliness, not following Christ, but this. 
And this is what will make you happy. And this is what will fulfill you in life. This is what will satisfy you. This is what will give you purpose. Not godliness. Not a life glorified to Christ. How are we expecting then to grow in godliness if we're constantly being bombarded with messages that say, this is more important. This is all you need. When in reality, Christ is all you need. So be careful to not let sin reign in your mortal body. Be careful what you let your eyes see. Be careful what you let your ears listen to. What about your tongue? How does your tongue interact with the world? James, the brother of Jesus, would write that the tongue is small, but it's mighty. Maybe like some of those scar paces, right? (laughs) It's small, but mighty. It can be used for great good or it can be used for great evil. How do you use your tongue? A little gossip here and there? Small lie? Maybe a little slander? Does your speech look like the world? Or does it look like Christ? When you're with your buddies, is your speech seasoned with salt and grace? Or the words that just fly out of your mouth the same as theirs? Is there any difference between your words, Christian, and that of a non-Christian? Paul would say in Ephesians to not let any corrupt talk come out of your mouth, only that which is edifying and building up to the body, right? Ephesians 4.29. Is that what your speech is like? Or does your speech put others down and build you up instead? Let your tongue be used in a God-glorifying way in this world. Do you know scripture enough that you can recite it to others? Do you use your tongue to sing loud praises to God? Do you use your tongue to share the gospel with others? Right? How are you using your tongue for the glory of God? Because there are many ways in which you can use your tongue. You can use it for the glory of God or you can use it to sin against God. How are you using your tongue? How are you using the very breath that God's given you? To praise him or to curse him? Last body part we'll look at. How do you use your hands? How do your hands and feet interact with the world? How do your hands and feet interact with the world? What do you use your hands for? For sin against God? For things that are dishonorable to Him? Where do your feet take you? Places where where sin is, is openly practiced and praised? Do you go to places that you know will tempt you to sin against God? Let your hands be used for him. Let your feet bring you to company that encourages you in your walk and exalts Christ. Guys, be careful of those who you spend the most time with. Scripture tells us that bad company corrupts good morals. I've told you guys this many times before. I know this to be true. Especially in my junior, senior year in high school. I thought, yeah, you know, I'm going to hang out with this group, and I'm the Christian guy, and I'm going to be a light to this, to this group of non-believers. I don't know if I really believed that or if I was just saying that to make myself feel better. I don't know, but I know it didn't last long. It didn't last long for them to corrupt me. And I take responsibility. I'm not saying that to them. I'm saying that the Bible's right. Bad company corrupts good morals. I came in with my good morals, and their bad company, what did it do? It corrupted me. And those were the, the, the darkest years of my life and just... Filled with sin. The way sin was reigning. 
And it's true. So be careful. On the flip side, what else does the Bible say? Iron sharpens iron, right? And on the flip side, I can say, yeah, man, when I surround myself with God's people and those who will push me towards Christ and not towards sin, man, those are some of the best days. And those are the best relationships I've ever had are those that are partnered with Christ. And we share that in common. Be careful who you hang out with. Be careful how where your feet take you. How your body interacts with the world. Now, Christian, our, remember, our, our soul is secured with God in heaven. Yes, amen. Like our Christian, your, your soul is secured in heaven. Sin cannot affect that. But our bodies are still here on earth. And sin attacks our bodies. So don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, he's saying. Don't, don't be obedient to your body's sinful passions, he's saying. In the ways in which your body interacts with the world, don't let sin reign. Remember, Christian, sin has no more authority over you. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. So don't let it. Don't listen to sin. It has no authority. Paul goes on to say to not let these members, these parts of the body that we talked about, don't let them be used as instruments of unrighteousness. All right, so that's the next imperative. Christian, do not. Have you seen another do not? Do not live as an instrument of unrighteousness. And the word used here for instrument I think it's probably better translated as weapon. In fact, every other time this word is used in Scripture is referring to a weapon of warfare. Every other time it's used. It's referring to a weapon of warfare. And I think, it, I think even that's fitting in this context as well. As in, do not use the members of your body as a weapon in service to your old ruler of sin who no longer has dominion over you. Don't use your body as that. Guys, we are in spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6. Christian, do not use your body as a weapon for the enemy. Why would you use your mind or, or, or your eyes or your ears, or your tongue or your hands or your feet for the sake and the benefit of the enemy? Why would you use it as a weapon of, of unrighteousness? Remember what you are to count on. That you are dead to sin and you are alive to God, right? So count on that. Reckon that. So don't go back to the dead. Don't live your life as an instrument of unrighteousness. Instead, he says, we're re-enlisted. We're re-enlisted to our new master, to God. Not to live as a weapon of warfare for the enemy or for sin. That's not how we're to use our bodies. It's not how we're to use our lives. So he says, present yourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. That's our last imperative. Christian, live now, he says, as what? As an instrument of righteousness. Live as an instrument of righteousness. It's possible for us to offer our lives as instruments of unrighteousness. But Christian, you've been set free. So he's saying you no longer have to. You can now offer your life as an instrument of righteousness. You can now live for God. And you're either living for God or you're living against him. 
See, there's, there, there, there's no neutrality here with how you live your life. You are an instrument. You are a weapon of warfare. How are you being used? How are you being used? You are living as an instrument of unrighteousness or you're living as an instrument of righteousness. Which is it? What is your life? Is your life an instrument of unrighteousness to sin? Or is your life an instrument of righteousness to God? If you claim to be a Christian, are you living much different than a non-Christian? That's my challenge for you. If you're here tonight, you claim to be a Christian. Are you living much different than a non-Christian? Or do you live as an instrument of unrighteousness just like that? We are in spiritual war. In what ways is your body fighting in the spiritual war? How are you fighting in the spiritual war? Your mind, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, your hands, your, your feet. Are they being used for the enemy? Or are they being used for God? Are they being used for sin? Or are they being used for godliness? Christian, remember, you've now been redeemed. Which means what? You now can live for God. The weapons of your body that were once used for the service of sin can now be used for the service of God. Like, isn't that exciting? Like, now your bodies, your lives are no longer our slaves to sin, no longer have to serve sin and the enemy. But now you can serve God. Are you using your gifts? Are you using your bodies for righteousness? For the glory of God? There are times, Christians, many times if we're honest, in which we do not use our lives, we do not use our bodies for righteousness, right? There are those times. That's why we fight. That's why it's a struggle. And most of all, that's why we have grace. We have grace. We can never forget that we are under grace. And even in our failures as a Christian, God's grace is there to sustain us till the end. Don't forget that. It's not about trying to maintain a, a good look to God. Like now I'm a Christian, so yes, I got to be an instrument of righteousness so that so I look good to God and I need to maintain this. No, it's about living for him with a worshipful heart and being covered by his grace. Always. In the good days and when you are living as an instrument of righteousness and even in the bad days, when you're living an instrument of unrighteousness, that God's grace is there in both times, in all times. So don't forget the grace of God. Which brings us to our last point and our final verse in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So our last point, we see the truth here in verse 14. And just one point here, Christian... You are under grace, not the law. You are under grace, not the law. See, why, why should we do any of this? Why should we do all, any of those commands that we talked about? Why should we obey these imperatives? Because of this indicative. Because of this truth. That sin is not your master. That you are not under law, but what? You are under grace. This is how we are to live our lives in light of God's grace. 
You've been set free from sin. You've been made alive in Christ by the grace of God. And now as a new creation, you have desires, new desires now to live for him. You are not under the law anymore. You see, to be under the law is to be judged by sin. We cannot keep the law. We are sinners. And being sinners, we sin. But Christian, sin no longer has dominion over you. Remember, you're dead to it. It doesn't have dominion over you. You are free, not only from the bondage of sin, but also the bondage of the law. Not because you've kept it, but because Christ kept it on your behalf. You see? So what? What is it? You are under grace now. That's what he's saying. You're under grace. The grace of God says that his favor towards you does not change in how much you keep the law or how much you don't keep the law because he is perfectly satisfied with you in Christ. You are under grace. So don't go back to living under the law. But live under grace. See, there there are two potential dangers for the person living under the law. The first is this, that you build a false sense of pride. That says, well, I kept the law pretty good. Me and God are square, right? Like, like we're good. Like, I've, I've done good things. I mean, even look at the, the, the rich young ruler. Like Jesus says, he says, oh, good teacher. He says, well, why, why do you call me good? For only God is, God is good. And rich young ruler says, yeah, me too. I'm good. Right? He says, yeah. I've, I've kept all the law. Right? It's this false sense of pride. And maybe you wouldn't be here and say, yeah. I'm perfect, but you would say, yeah, I'm pretty good because I, I have kept most of the law. I am a pretty good kid, and I do go to church, and I don't say bad things, and I don't do this, and I don't do that, and all this stuff. And you're living, you're comparing yourself under the law, and you have this false sense of pride. And that's one potential danger, and I'll explain why in a little bit. The second danger is actually the opposite. In which someone who's under the law, not under grace, but under the law, they say, man, I can't keep this law. And and they try to live and they try to live it. And they say, I have no hope. There's no way I I can keep this law. But they're still under the law. And so now they're like, well, now I don't know what to do. And so over time, you give up and you grow resentful and you get frustrated and you leave the church because you say, this is impossible. This is ridiculous. Both are bad. Both are dangerous. But you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes right in the middle of that. Right in the middle and says, you can't keep the law. But Jesus Christ did. And you can be made complete. And you can be made right through him. Not by your works or your completion of the law, but through Christ. And that's being under grace. So I ask you then, when we look at a list like this of these commands, I ask you, so why, why do you obey? Why do you we'll get in discussion groups in a little bit and say, oh, yeah, you know, I need to not let sin reign. Oh, yeah, you know, I need to not live as an instrument of, of unrighteousness. Why? Why follow any of these commands that Paul just gave or really a- any commands in Scripture? Why? Do you obey out of submission to the law? Maybe you aren't a Christian here tonight and, and you're trying to make yourself right before God so you obey his commands. Or maybe you are a Christian and you want to keep God's favor towards you. And so you obey God's commands so that he'll be happy and he'll be pleased with you. Both are not right. Both are still submitting to the law. We ought to live under grace. 
Do you obey? Do you obey these things under grace? Knowing that God's love and favor for the Christian is perfect and it's complete and it's unchanging. And this amazing grace in which we see that God has given to his people is to create in you a new desire now to worship him and to live in obedience to him. That's our motive is the grace of God because of the grace in which he's given us. So again, we go back to the original question. Should I continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Why? We are under grace. Not so that we can continue in sin. Although if we do what? His grace is sufficient. We have that freedom. But what? We are under grace so that we can put away our sin. Because we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace. So Christian, live under grace. Not under the law, but under grace. As we close tonight, we see for the first time here in the book of Romans that Paul gives us a command. In fact, he gives us four. He says, why give you one? I'll just give you four. It's important that we pay close attention to these, yes, but it's equally important that we understand that these imperatives, that these commands are not what save you. Obeying God's commands, obeying God's word is never... What saves you? And so if you're here, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, please don't misunderstand this and walk away thinking that you need to do better. Or that you need to obey more of God's commands in order for God to be happy with you. Or even that God would save you. Don't walk away thinking that. If you're not a Christian, following God's commands or being obedient to God is, is not what you should be striving after right now. It, it, it does you no good. If anything, maybe it, it does you harm. What you need to strive after is Christ. It is faith in him that he alone can save you. Not your own doing, but all 100% Christ's doing. And it's repentance of your sins, admitting your sins against the holy God, and turning away from your sins and submitting to him instead. That's what you need, non-Christian. These commands do not save you. These commands are a result of already having been saved, you see. So Christian, these commands are for you. They are for you. Not for you to maintain God's love and favor. Not for you to be put in a better light with God. All right, if I start doing these, God's going to like me better than, than Richard over here. You know, he's not doing it. No. But obedience to, the, to these commands is the fruit of the saving work of what God has already done in your life. So Christian, are you living your life in light of God's grace? Or put it another way, does God's grace have any impact, make any difference in your life? Consider that you are dead to sin and alive to God. Don't let sin reign in your life. Don't live as an instrument of unrighteousness, but instead live as an instrument of righteousness. And all of this, Christian, because you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. If, you claim you're, if you're here tonight, you claim to be a Christian. I ask you, have, have you seen evidences and fruit in your life? Have you seen evidence? Have you seen fruit in your life? Have you seen a growing desire to be obedient? To God's commands.
hope you have, Christian. My prayer is that you would joyfully live in obedience to God. That you would consider the finished work of Christ. You take that into account. That you know with confidence the finished work of Christ. And that you would live not as instruments of unrighteousness. But instead, because by the grace of God, you are now moved and you are motivated. And you, you have a desire now to live as an instrument of righteousness for God. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Lord God, it is to your glory and your glory alone that we seek. And I pray that your spirit would be working in us. Uh, Lord, that we would consider these truths. That we are dead to sin and alive in you. And that we would not let sin reign in our lives. That we wouldn't live as instruments of unrighteousness. But God, by your grace, we would live as instruments of righteousness for you. Help us remember your grace, God. Not continue to go back to the law. But let us live under grace. And Lord, for any of those in here who do not know you in this way, Lord, I pray they would not walk away seeking to do more. But God, I pray that they would fall on their knees in faith and repentance to you and that you would save them. And we pray that you'd be with us in this time, in discussion, that it would be an honest, fruitful time. God, that you would truly be working through it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.